Thanks, John, for that. Now, let me go quickly uh, to Rachel Doyle, who joins me from the National Women's Council, because they're in the University of Sanctuary in Galway today, and the uh, University of Galway, and they're having a referendum information session, indeed, uh, today, from 11am until 1pm at Arsenal Mock Lane. Rachel, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. You're, you're on the road, so you are with this one, and again, trying to educate, yes. trying to educate people. Uh, I hope you get a good crew today. Yes, I hope we will. And I think there's increasing um, recognition of the importance of the referendums that we've been asked to vote on on the 8th of March. I think people are starting now to really think about it and to recognise that this is an opportunity to vote in two really important referendums, really important for the future of Ireland, for the future of our families, for the future of our children. And I think people are really starting to um, develop an interest now. And um, so I hope uh, that as many people as possible can can attend this morning's uh, session. Now, so it's running from 11 to uh, 1 o'clock. Have you many with you currently? That's right. Um, there is there are people well we're actually starting at half 11, half 11 okay. so people are starting to come in now and we are uh, yeah we're hoping for a good crowd it's in meeting room one in Oris Namak Lane in the university so um, people are very welcome to attend and what is your key message then can I ask you Rachel because we I mean we've been following this very closely the key message that you would have for <laughs> them today I think our key message is that we want people to go out and to vote um, and to vote yes to both of these referendums. Um, it's our opportunity, we believe, to vote for a fairer, more equal Ireland where, you know, we recognise all families and all children equally, which is not currently the case in our constitution, that we recognise the role and contribution of care done by women and men in our homes that, that is recognised and supported. This gives us an opportunity to send a clear message to government that, you know, we value care and we value a caring society, one that supports families and care. Absolutely. And it also brings our constitution into line with the reality of, of women's lives, this idea of, you know, women's role solely being that of providing, you know, care in the home and so on. Women play that role. It's a crucial role, but it should and is often provided by women and men. And we need to recognise that. And we need to recognise the role of the state in providing care. Okay. So we want to, you know, bring our constitution into line. The constitution is a statement of our values as a society. If we do not pass this referendum, we're saying it's fine. Leave it as it is. We'll push others to the back, you know, carers, people with disabilities, uh, women, okay. you know, they don't matter to us. So a no, a no in this referendum will be hugely detrimental um, in, a, in our view. We will be covering it extensively between now and the referendum, but somebody just texted in here and said, why wasn't this brought before the two houses of the Oireachtas for amendments uh, before going to the referendum? Bri briefly, Rachel, on that um, one. I think it is... Was but and and there were there were different um, there was different wording proposed uh, by by various political parties. There was different wording proposed by uh, the citizens' assembly and the um, and by the Oireachtas Committee on Gender Equality. But the thing about it is, is we are where we are now. We know that the wording isn't perfect, but we don't have, there's nothing else on the table. It's this or nothing. We've campaigned for decades for this referendum to happen. Okay. Women in 1937 
campaigned against the insertion of article um, of the, the, the women in the home article 41.3. In 1937, women were campaigning okay. against this. If it's not good enough then, if it wasn't good enough then, it's yeah, not good, good enough, enough in 2024. So we really need, we need, we really need big changes at this point in time. Super. And we, we need to recognise that society has changed, is continuing to change, that 43% of births take place outside marriage. We need to recognise that the definition of the family as it is in our constitution okay. is hugely outdated and really needs to change as well. So we're we're calling for a yes, yes vote and we really believe that a yes vote in this referendum okay. will allow us to campaign more for a public childcare system, for universal social care, for universal pensions so everyone has dignity in old age and for better and longer family leave entitlements. So okay. a yes vote sends clear messages and a strong mandate to this and future governments about the kind of society that we want to see uh, evolving. I hope you get the numbers today again from 11.30 to 1pm indeed at Arsenal Mock Lane if you want to go to room one there you can do so Rachel Coyle, uh, Coyle and the team will be there and uh, Rachel Doyle excuse me Rachel Coyle is also there as well so she is but they're all there the Doyles and the Coyles uh, but uh, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, today in the programme. Now let me go to Anya Caulfield who's been snuck in in front of me today and briefly we're looking at At VentureCon. It's a community event taking place this month with all the proceeds going to the Athenry Adventures RPG Youth Club. Uh, good morning to Anya. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I good. had a good stealth check there coming in I hope. <laughs> no, you, you snuck in there so you didn't. I look up and you're sitting in front of me. Uh, but uh, talk to me about this. I know you did this before so you did but you're having a major um, fundraising the event. We did. So we did it last year. It was our first time ever with AdventureCon 1. And uh, we're back again. Uh, two days, double the fun. Uh, it is going to be a two-day convention. This year we are in Loch Ray Hotel and Spa. So uh, more space for you. More space, yeah. So you're, what you're looking at here, though, is you're bringing people and um, playing games, board games, artists, crafters, writers, uh, panels, demonstrations. What's cosplay? Cosplay. Cosplay is when people are dressed up in costumes, um, often inspired from video games. Uh, we have a great cosplay community here in the west of Ireland, and they're going to come in, um, they're going to do a talk about how to make your own cosplay, so making your own costume pieces. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine like um, a, a tiefling, like a devil creature would have horns, how yeah. to make those horns with craft supplies yourself. Um, so and so things it's like that. two fun days then, basically. Was it a huge success the last time? It was. We were blown away. We were sold out ahead of the the event. We had people coming in for tickets at, at the door. We we were absolutely blown away, and the support for it from the community, the TTRPG community, so podcasters, artists, um, the cosplay community is huge. There's people coming from all wow. over Ireland to take part and volunteer their time, which is wow. such. So Lovely. where can they get tickets then? Because this is taking place, well, I'm right, it's on the 24th and 25th of February, which is really only around the corner. Really. It is, yeah, 17 days. <laughs> oh, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm counting it down. 17 um, days. It is, um, so the tickets are available on our website, so ath, as A-T-H, athventurecon, uh, .ie um, is where the tickets are available. Uh, there, it's a two-day event. The Saturday is for ages 12 and up only mm -hmm. but the Sunday uh, is a more uh, family friendly day we still recommend ages 8 and up because um, yeah. it, it is 
better suited for uh, older kids and teenagers. Really. Roughly, what are the cost of tickets? Uh, the tickets are, so a weekend ticket for adults is 28 and for youths is 20 euro uh, a day it's very ticket. very well priced. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, it's, everything is in when you pay your ticket at the door. There's no extra costs once you get inside unless you go mad at the market and buy lots of things. Please buy lots of or things. Or food or something. Yeah. Food and stuff and yeah. uh, people staying in the hotel. It's going to be a hell of a weekend. <laughs> that's a very that's very good price uh, from there. So if they go to ATH, which goes the first bit of um, mm-hmm. Athen Rye, then Venture, then con.ie, they can get to its conference uh, so they can get further details from there. Absolutely, yep. All right, lovely to have you. Will you let us know how it goes again, if you don't mind? I would love to, yeah. And uh, send us in some shots of the cosplay people and what they're dressed up as. They'll be fabulous. What are you going dressed up as? I'll be going as myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough for anybody. <laughs> you, you look wonderful, so you do. So oh, don't, thanks, don't, don't, don't be <laughs> so, giving, so do you. <laughs> don't be giving all about yourself. Anya Caulfield, uh, thank you indeed. And again, at VentureCon uh, 2024 for the details. Now, yet to come in the programme, we have a new book that has hit the uh, streets for us as well. And also, John goes to history on today's programme. And uh, he's going down as far as Ross Abbey with John McHugh. And we have history talks there. Stay tuned for that and more to come. Further details on that can be had. It's 24th and 25th of February at Venture.com for further details. And uh, just, it'll sell out from today on. On you, that's it. Over Thanks and out. Much. Thanks indeed. <laughs> Very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. I'm joined by Marie O'Connor, who has brought a new book to us with Pool Bank uh, Press as well. It's called Whispers on the Main Street, and she sits after me today. Uh, good morning to you, Marie. Thanks, Eddie, for joining us uh, today. You're a native of Mayo. Good morning. How are you? Yes, indeed. I'm from a small village called Churla. So that's about five miles outside the town of Castlebar. It's probably most famous for... Um, it's got the first national museum outside of Dublin. Oh, yeah, it's the yeah. uh, Museum of Country Life. Beautiful. And come here, did you base then um, Whispers on the Main Street? Um, did you base it on, on life in, in Mayo or was this something that just came out of your head? No, I would have based it on life in Mayo because I grew up in the countryside in a rural area. Um, I based it on, it's a fictitious town I've written about, but I've based it on all, on all those smaller great towns that are in Ireland, the likes of Hedford, Ballandine, Foxford, um, Bal, for example. And they all have a story to tell, but you've taken this story and you've, you've brought it to, uh, to print from there. And I was just going through some of it indeed last night. And you, you have lovely cliches in it um, about the dog pound in Claire Morris and uh, also indeed the truck uh, to run down. You know, you've, 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 you've taken it to a new level. Yes. Um, so it's a vintage murder mystery. So it's set, like I said, in a fictitious town in County Mayo in 1961. Now, it's very light and funny. It's full of adventure. It's not gory or violent. It's not going to keep you awake at night. Um, and there's very likeable and funny characters in it. Um, so, you know, it's it's very pleasant read. Um, it's not going to keep you awake. There's no one cut up or put into a suitcase <laughs> or anything like that. No, and the doctor is sent back to Detroit, so he is. Yes, he is. He wasn't um, doing a good job, so you got rid of him, so you did. But you brought, you brought a lot of humour into it. Would you Would you have, would you be humorous normally? Um, I, I Maybe not necessarily, I wouldn't describe myself like that, but maybe my friends would. Yeah. And uh, I suppose my late father was, was very humorous and uh, he was a good man for the cliches and the mm. little stories. So I probably picked up a good few so from you him. So you've, you've stitched those in right through the books that you have? Yes, yeah. yeah. And when you were writing it, were you writing it as a book? When you were writing it, were you writing it as a book or were you writing it for yourself, hoping to get it published and then Pool Bake picked up on it? The latter. I was writing it for myself in the hope that 
as you said, it would be a big job as a challenge, you know, to see how far my imagination could go. Because, do you know what, it would make a lovely screenplay. Yes. Um, you've written it in such a way, no disrespect to you, it's beautifully written, but you've written it in such a way that you could actually see it doing the amateur drama circuit so you could, because it is a story about a village. Sure, absolutely. And I think my background, um, my careers have always been in a very visual medium. Um, I've worked in television and I've also worked in the medium of uh, window dressing. Mm. So being creative on a daily basis was always part of my job. So you continue the creativity then with your writing? Yes, yeah. So you, you can see then, you can you can imagine what the finished product is going to look like. Be it the yeah, what I'm writing, um, I'm, I'm always picturing the scene in my head mm. and how the characters are looking and where exactly they are. Mm. And family-wise, have they noticed any of their own um, quirks in them or have, have your family read it yet? Uh, I haven't read all of it yet. Um, they're in the <laughs> middle of it. But yeah, are, yeah. But are, do they feature? No, they don't. Absolutely ah, not. On, <laughs> They have to feature somewhere <laughs> on it. Uh, now, you're having your, your book launch this coming Friday in Dubray's at 6.30. That's correct. And anybody can go along and sign copies of it and all that. Of then. course, yes. I'd love to, I'd be delighted to yeah. sign copies. And, I mean, do you worry about reviews then or anything? No. Or, no, no. I've decided already that I'm not going to read them if I can. You know, I did this for me. And once it's out there, you know, then it's out of my control. So I don't want to be affected by any negativity about well, it. It's a good outlook to have on light. Because what other people think of you is none of their business. That's true. Yeah. That's the way I go through life like that because you can get an awful lot of abuse in here. But what other people think of me doesn't really bother me. It's their problem, not my problem. So don't worry about the reviews from there then. Are you delighted with the finished product? Absolutely. Yes. I can't describe the feeling when you walk into a shop and you see your own book on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. After all the hard work and all the sweat. And from when you picked up the pen and you started it to having it on that shelf, how long would that have taken you roughly? Um, it took me a few years only because there was no pressure on me to write it. You know, I had no d- deadlines or anything like that boom looming over my head. Yeah. So I could take my time with it. Yeah, which is a nice way to put a book together mm-hmm. and, and to write it. Um, the Mayo fellow outside the window here, John Morley, asked me to ask you about Johnny Cash. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. Email people just hang on together so you don't <laughs> yeah. go on, sorry. Well, he's probably the most famous person I ever met. So I think it was 1989. John or Mr. Cash? Oh, Mr. Cash. Oh, I yeah, I didn't so. have the privilege of meeting <laughs> Mr. Morley as of yet. Um, but I was go- attending Dava College Secondary School in Castle Bar. And a little ritual we had every day was down the town to buy our sweets on Castle Street uh, in a shop owned by the late Mrs. Anne Byrne. And one day, uh, it was our friend's birthday, another girl in the class, we'd bought her birthday card. So we went down to buy our sweets as of normal and Mrs. Byrne was already outside the shop, very excited to see us. And she said, girls, you won't believe who's after walking into the bookshop. And we said, who? And she said, Johnny Cash. And we said, who? (laughs) (laughs) Of course we knew who Johnny Cash was. We were just acting the maggot. But the leader of our gang decided wouldn't it be a great idea to get Johnny Cash to sign the birthday card. Mm. So that's what we went to do. So we went into the shop. He was there. He was very engaged. He was reading a book he'd picked off the shelf. He was wearing his glasses. He was all dressed in black, even on his day off. And uh, the leader of the gang uh, buckled. Uh, She didn't have the courage to go up to him. So I was hurtled forward. So I tapped the imposing man on his arm and I said, excuse me, would you mind signing my friend's birthday card? And he just swiped off his spectacles and said, well, sure, little girl. <laughs> it is best American role. And he was very pleasant and very nice about it. Well, and does that, that doesn't feature in the book, though? No. 
doesn't. Not so in this one. Uh, it'll feature the opening so as well in Debray's at 6.30 this coming Friday. Rio Connor, thanks indeed for popping in for today. It's called Whispers on the Main Street. Did you pick the title as well? or No, it was a, a collaboration. Collaboration. Between ourselves. But and, it's uh, very apt though. Yes, I think so, yeah. Whispers on the Main Street. It could be any town, so it could. Really, thanks indeed for popping into us uh, today. And it's, uh, again, very well priced. You can buy it at uh, 16 in all good bookstores. Or if you want to pop into Dubray's at 6.30 this coming Friday night, you can do so uh, from there. And again, the author is called Marie O'Connor, Whispers on the Main Street. And if you want to get further details from any good bookstore or online and buy it uh, from there, Marie, thanks for popping into us. Thank you very much for having Have me. Have another book in you? Absolutely. When is that coming out? Next year. Good luck with it. <laughs> Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for joining us. Quick commercial break and we're back indeed. And we're looking at history. And John Morley went out and about, uh, so he did this week, and he spoke with um, John McHugh and he talks about Ross Abbey with History Talks next. Stay tuned for that and more to come. Now, I'm delighted to say I'm joined on History Talks by John McHugh. And we're talking all about the history of Ross Early Friary. Uh, John, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Tell us a bit about the history of Ross Early Friary. Where does it go back to? Well, the Friary itself goes back to, well, there are a number of dates that are given for the Friary of, of Ross. There's a, a date of, 13, of 1431, uh, which is, was, was given by Louis Amund. And <clears throat> based on the dates of Luke Walting, there's a date of 1498 uh, given by James Weir. But the date this is, that we officially are going by is 1351, which was given by uh, Brother Michael O'Cleary, who was the chief of the four, the four masters. These were the people who wrote the annals of the four masters. And in fact, he wrote part of the annals of the four masters while he was in Ross Early. So the date of 1351 can't be brushed under the carpet as handy as the rest of them. Um, as regards the actual story of the Friary itself, back in the 1300s, there was a, a plague called the Black Death. It was rampant in Europe, and it was particularly rampant in Ireland. And a lot of the monks and the priests of, of the time would have been educated in Europe, in France, but as well as being educated in, the, in theology, they would also have picked up little tips as well as regards medicine and that type of stuff. So as people were getting sick, these were going out administering to the, to the sick and the dying. And a lot of the friars and the monks and the priests had, had themselves contracted the disease and died. And the Archbishop of Tume at the time, Dr. Malachi McHugh, who himself was a member of the Franciscan Order, he was going out attending to the sick and the dying as well. And one night, it said that when he returned to Tume after a hard day's work out tending to his parishioners, after he had his tea, he went into the chapel to pray. And he was praying fervently that the plague would, 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 end, would finish, would die. And he fell asleep. And while he was asleep, he had a dream. And in the dream, he was told that if he went to a place called Cordaro, just outside Hetford, he would be given a sign that he was to build a, uh, a house for the poor friars. The poor friars in those days were the actual Franciscan order. So the following morning, he got his servant and they got their chariot and they came out to Hetford and they stopped just outside Hetford in a place called Cordaro and they waited. And after a while, three swans rose out of the sedges, the long grass from beside the road, and they circled the archbishop. And he noticed when they were circling that they had bunches of flaxseed in their mouth. So the swans flew due west from there and they landed in a little hillock in a marshy piece of ground. 
So the Archbishop went over to see where the swans had landed to find that the swans had disappeared and in place of the swans that were growing three bunches of flax in full bloom even though it was still on the month of February so flax wouldn't have been in bloom in that stage anyway. So he took it as being the sign that this is where the, the house was to be built and a short distance away in Calorsa was the, uh, the church of uh, St. Furza who was the patron saint of the parish. St. Furza in actual fact was a, a nephew of St. Brendan the Navigator. So the Archbishop went over and they stayed at the, in St. Forza's church for a couple of days. And after three or four days of prayer and fastenance, and made, uh, they called all the local people in, told them what, about the story. They went over to where the three bunches of flaxes were and they started to build, or they started to dig the foundation of the friary. Uh, they started that in 1349. It was com- the first section was completed in 1351, but the Archbishop never lived to see it. He actually died before it was completed. Now, if you look at the friary nowadays, this friary that exists there today, the building that's there today, that's not the building that was there in 1351. The building that was there in 1351 was a smaller version of that. And over the years, as the friary, as the years went by, local landlords who were... Um, who were Catholics or who were um, friendly with the with the with the with the with the friars? They gave donations towards towards the friary. So extensions were built. The tower was built. The seventy-five foot tower was built. And at the present moment, inside the outer walls of the friary, it covers exactly one acre of ground. Imagine what that would have cost you built if you built a house today that was going to cover an acre of ground and what it would have cost you. Um, the olden friary, the olden part of the friary itself, that would have been co- the roofed with uh, thatch, straw or reeds, but the later sections of the roof were actually roofed with stone, stone flags, and that is one of the, that's one of the main reasons why why the friary is in ruin at the, is in ruins now because um, over the course of the years the friary itself, the monks left it three times, and the last time that the monks left. The friary was in 1804, but they returned every so often to say mass there on a Sunday. Well, in 1840, they, they left it for the final time, and because in the intervening years between 1804 and 1840, because the friary wasn't in use, it, it, the timbers began to decay, and with the weight of the stone flags on the roof, the timbers collapsed, and the roofs collapsed, so the friars, that was the last time the friars were actually in the friary. Um, the friary itself has has a lot of a lot of other history. Like in, in 1492, Lady Nulo O'Donnell, the wife of Red Hugh O'Donnell from Donegal, there was a provinciate in the in the friary, and she came down to ask the provincial at the time to send monks to Donegal to found a friary in Donegal. He refused. Uh, but she stayed in the friary for a certain length of time and every day she was on aunt, him to send friars up and he kept refusing her. And eventually she threatened him that she would report him to the Pope for not doing that, to, uh, for um, leaving the people of Donegal without um, friars and without religion, basically. So eventually he gave in and he sent a number of friars with her up to Donegal and they founded the friary in Donegal. Um, anybody who travels to Donegal just before you come into Donegal Town on your left hand side on your way in there's a car park and between the car park and the sea is the actual ruin of the original friar, friary but like 
Dr. Maliki McHugh, Lady Nudo Dolan, never lived to see that fire being finished either. And she was interred in the high altar underneath, underneath the high altar. Um, there's a lot of coincidences now with, with Ross Early in Hetford, um, in the sense that the Bishop of Ross in, in Scotland um, and some of his parishioners were actually sent to Mayo. They were sent down to Kalala in Mayo. Uh, and during the during the 1600s, there were um, there were insurrections all over the place after six, after the the insurrection of 1690 failed, um, a lot of the Irish were attacking the foreigners that were in the country, and he decided that he was going that that there was his parishioners himself and his family and his parishioners were being attacked, so they decided that they would leave and come back to Scotland, so they were given. Um, they were given uh, safe passage, supposedly, from Kelala to Shrule, which was the other end of the Mio board, just outside, just o- over the Galway border, um, by Burke from Castlebar. When they got to Shrule, they were supposed to be met there by Ulick Burke from Castlehackett, but there was a delay in Ulick Burke getting there. So the people who were supposed to be guarding them, went on the drink in Shrule. They got drunk and they started killing the Scottish Protestants that they were supposed to be protecting. And like in, they were supposed to have killed so many that the river itself, the Black River, they said was, it, it, ran red, it ran red with their blood. But uh, when Ulick Burke arrived in Shrule, he arrived with the friar uh, from uh, Father Conway from Ross Early, and he took the bishop and his wife and his children and two, two, two female servants and a male servant back to Ross Early um, to patch up their wounds and to get them ready again for travelling. And they eventually made their way back to Scotland. So you have Ross in Hetford, you have... Uh, the Donegal Friary, and you have Ross in Scotland. Now, the reason I said the Donegal Friary is when the Friary in Donegal went into decay, the Franciscans moved out to a place called Ross Nola. So you now have Ross in Hetford, Ross Nola in Donegal, and you have Ross in Scotland, all three connected. Now, whether it's fate or whether it's just coincidence, we don't know, but it's, it's something like that you, you, know, you have to think about. In terms of the... English Reformation, the impact that would have had. I know that plays a part in the life of the Friary in terms of when Queen Elizabeth I came to power, the Abbey was confiscated and given to Richard Burgh. That's right, yeah. Now, actually, Elizabeth Elizabeth really wasn't what she did. Elizabeth caused an awful lot of problems as regards religion in Ireland. But the one who caused... The most, well, the reason that Elizabeth did was because um, Henry VIII, because of Henry VIII wasn't allowed to divorce. He cut himself off from Rome. So she was really um, an instigator in closing the churches and the monasteries. But the one who was really was the, the instigator of the problems in Ireland was Cromwell. And Cromwell, when he, when he took over power in England, um, his famous 
or the, his famous uh, expression he's supposed to have said is to, to head or to Connacht. Everything was pushed into Connacht. And he sent out his troops to close down to make sure that all friaries and all monasteries were closed and shut down. He wanted to kill, kill Catholicism. And what, what he didn't realise was that an awful lot of the, the landlords in Ireland had become friendly with the monks or the priests or the bishops within their own area. And, for example, now in Tume, the Archbishop of Tume, William Daniel, um, he warned the monks that of the, of the, of the intending um, visit of the troops to Ross Early. Um, so the monks took all of the valuables that they could find that they had in the friary and they hid them so that when the troops came to Ross Early all they found was just a bare, a bare, a bare building but because they were looking for valuables and they couldn't find any they began to break open the tombs and they took out the, 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 the coffins out of the tomb, took out the corpses, they threw them outside, they broke open the coffins looking for any kind of values that they could have the people would have been buried with. They didn't find any, and they left. And when the monks came back, they found this mound of bones and corpses and broken coffins outside the friary. Now, the monks decided that you couldn't start putting people back together like a jigsaw puzzle to trying to figure out whose bone belonged to who. So what they did was they just covered the bones uh, where they were. And even today now, if you, if, if you visit the friary, once you go inside the, the, the first gate onto the friary ground, before you go into the main building itself, on your left-hand side there's a mound of clay. And that's the mound of clay that's covering all of, those, all, all of, the, all of the bones. Um, the friars were forced to leave the friary on three separate occasions. And... As I said, like when they eventually came back in eighteen in eighteen oh four, it was it was only they weren't actually staying there. They were only they were actually living in Kilroe. They were living in uh, there's an island and there was an island on the Black River called Friars Island, and <clears throat> that's where they actually moved to, to Friars Island. Actually, the friary itself, the building itself was on the on the Galway side of the Black River, but the orchard and the Haggard and the, a lot of the sheds were actually in, in, on the Mayo side of the river and in, at the height of its at the height of its period at the time Ross Early had a total of 1300 acres of land and uh, as it says in the, in, the, in, the, in the annals there were seven score and one monks seven score and one friars in the friary that means that there were 141 monks in the friary at the time, which is a huge amount of monks. Um, the friary is unique in, in a lot of sense. Um, in the corner of the kitchen, there's a well. It looks like a well. It's actually a fish tank. The, the friars could catch fish in the river, take the fish alive into the kitchen, put them into the tank. So whenever you needed fish, you caught the fish in the tank, so you had fresh fish the whole time. And that tank was actually fed by an underground stream that came through to the mill, turned the mill wheel for making the flour. It passed underneath this tank that the fish were kept in, so they had always that fresh water. And it passed underneath another corner of the building, 
Now remember, this was built back in the 1300s. Well, let's say the, the extensions would have been built in the 14 and 1500s. They actually had, um, how would I describe it? A, medi a medieval version of a flush toilet. In the sense that underneath the toilets, the stream was flowing. So when you used the toilet, it went straight into the stream and it was taken away. And um, if you ever visit the Friary, just off the kitchen, you can see the actual toilets, the stone-cut toilets in little um, alcoves in the wall. And around the corner, there's a double wall. And upstairs was the dormitory, the friar's dormitory. And off the dormitory, they had their little ensuite. And they had their toilets up there, which would have been wooden. And while you were in the toilet upstairs, a friar could be in the toilet downstairs, but your toilet was passing down in the gap in the two walls, between the two walls, while he was still doing his business downstairs. You could be doing your business upstairs, neither of you knowing that the other one was there. In terms of the downfall and the regression of the friary, tell us about how that happens. I know you, you mentioned the date, the 1840s. Was it after the famine that it went to real decline? No, actually, no, no, it was before the famine. Um, in, in 1804 was the last time that the friars had left the friary. Um, as I said, they only returned on a weekly basis to say mass. Maybe even, maybe even some, some uh, weeks they would have come back during the week, like was there for, for feast days or for holidays. But because the friary wasn't being lived in, and there was no heat being, being maintained in, in, in the building, they, as I said, the timbers began to give way because of the weight of the actual roof. And they, they literally, it, it literally collapsed. It literally collapsed. But it had collapsed in 1840, and the famine didn't happen until, un, un, until, until the mid-1840s. And in terms of modern uses, I know it's been a <coughs> filming location for big movies like The Quiet Man and, and different series as well, more recently. That's true, it has. Um, and I... <laughs> in actual fact, in the film *The Quiet Man*, uh, the shot, the first shot you get of, of Ross Early is when Barry Fitzgerald is taking John Wayne out to the White of Morn, and they look in and they can see the shot of, the, of Ross Early, and Barry Fitzgerald says, "That's the ancestral homes, that's the ancestral home of his <laughs> of, of his family." Um, the the friary is we're in a kind of a, a a sticky situation here now in the sense that because of where we're situated in Galway our tourism board is run from Ballinasloe uh, because of where we're situated, in, situated here in North East Galway um, we're, our, we're actually coming our base for tourism is Ballinasloe whereas the majority of coaches that come through Hetford come from Galway City they're either going from Galway City to Kong to get into Connemara or they've been through Connemara from Galway going back to my colon and they're coming back into Galway through Hetford. But they're, they're, mess, they're missing an awful lot of history on this part of the Corrib. For example, in, up in Anadown, you have Anadown Pier where Raftery wrote the famous poem Boho Asanakoan where the, the people were drowned leaving Anadown. Uh, you have the Anadown Cathedral the ruined Anadown Cathedral. In Hedford, you have Ross Early. You have the house that still, still exists, it's still there, the actual house where Mary Kelly, Mary Eve of the nation, was born. And then between Hedford and Kong, you have burial gardens that are there since th 
3,500 BC. And these are all being passed because they're not being pushed by tourism. Um, for example, there's an, uh, Ross Early is an ideal spot to have a tourist information centre, to have a little place where tourists can come, they can have their cup of coffee, they can have their cup of tea, they can purchase um, local stuff there, um, and they can be taken on guided tours of the Friday by people who are trained to do that. And you could take people off the register, the live register, and give them work there for... They could work there from quite happily from March right through to the end of October. Um, as it is, we're lucky in the sense that Galway tours take tourists off the beating path and they take them down to Ross early. You can have anything up to five or six coaches in there during the day on top of... I remember there was one particular day I counted them. There were 55 cars and there were seven coaches had gone through the Friary. But it's, it's, it's a mortal sin that there's no one there that could actually take them on a guided tour of the, of the Friary. Um, and and it, is, it, is, it, is, it is well worth taking them on, taking them on, on the guided tour of, of the Friary. Um, in actual fact, I just... <clears throat> my father wrote a booklet on the Friary. And uh, the little piece that he wrote himself at, at, at the back uh, would give you an idea of what the Friary must have been like. Uh, it's just called Reflections. As we stand in front of the ancient ruin prior, prior to our departure, let us take a last look at those pointed gables, gaping windows and tall bell tower with sharp pinnacles like fingers pointing towards the heavens. Still reluctant to leave this hallowed spot, we may ponder what soul-striving sermons re-echoed through the vaulted nave and transepts in the glorious years of the friary. We may reflect on the great pomp and ceremony which were evident there on important ecclesiastical occasions, and in imagination we may hear once more the chanting of matins wafting in the cold still air of the early dawn. These are but reflections, however, and the, rea the reality of Ross is long since past, but past though it may be, the old grey ruin still speaks to us and preaches a sermon far more effective than words. And that's, what it's, that's exactly what the Friary does. And it would be great if we could have people, we could have tourists coming to the Friary as part of their itinerary. And that booklet is The Friary of Ross, A History and a Guide by John B. McHugh. And is, it, is that still available? Yeah, it's still available. Yeah, it's still available. Um, the beauty about this little booklet is the actual... Um, up to the centre page, it gives the history of the friary from its foundation right up to the, to the monks leaving in 1840. The centre page is, is an actual map of floor pan of the friary, um, what was on ground floor and, and what was above the actual ground floor. And the second part of the book then is to, you can actually go take it and you can go on a guided tour reading about every single room that you're in and what was above it and what took place in the friary. John McHugh, thank you for joining us on History Talks on Galway Talks. No problem, John, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, interesting stuff, isn't it? We're just sitting in the studio listening to that, but uh, well done to uh, John Morney on that. That's History Matters on this uh, Wednesday morning. We're back with July from Studio One tomorrow morning. And on tomorrow's programme, we'll be looking at withdrawal of the EU pesticide policy, which comes into uh, 
um, Irish farmers' lives. Uh, we'll be looking at the Connect Tribune headlines. We have pet talks uh, tomorrow as well. Morgan Brothers are excited to announce that uh, they're seeking uh, performances, uh, performers for a brand new stage musical as well. Hours to Protect is on uh, tomorrow morning. Also looking indeed at Michael McDool has strongly advised to go against the referendum. So we'll see if we get him for tomorrow mornings as well. Uh, Town Hall gig Gallia Vlagaza is uh, taking place uh, this coming weekend. So we'll give you details on that and much more. John Morley produced uh, today. Siobhan took your comments. And from your studio, Keith Finnegan, until tomorrow, just after the 9 o'clock news for Thursday's programme, have a good Wednesday. Bye-bye now.